Sweet. So welcome back to Candid. We're on episode 21. And once again, we're joined by a guest. This time, it's a familiar face. Uh, you'll recall, I forget which episode it was, but we mentioned Drew Kaufman um, because of his wonderful Extra Textuals blog. And Drew is now joining us to talk about a number of uh, pretty interesting things. Um, but Alvaro, I mean, we should probably introduce Drew, right? I mean, he's more than just a random blogger. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a he's a friend of mine, and I've been sort of interacting with him over the internet for quite a few months already. Uh, he's also a fellow contributor to Tools and Toys, and like you said, his blog is just incredible. And on top of that, he also happens to be a terrific photographer, which is, of course, the main reason why he's been kind enough to joining us today. So welcome to the show, Drew. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so I, I started uh, I started writing maybe about a year ago, um, as much as I have been writing, where I basically write at least five days a week. And uh, I started taking photos maybe about six or seven years ago. Um, both of the things are just kind of self-taught. I, uh, I started taking photography because I had a, a friend of mine who lived in Guatemala, and I visited him. Nice. And uh, I came back and thought, man, these pictures that I took with this point and shoot, they just didn't. They, they didn't at all represent what I really saw, the beauty of what I really saw. And so the next year when I went back, I, uh, the, last, the, the day before I went back, I impulsively bought a uh, little Canon Rebel. And I sort of learned how to shoot um, in Guatemala every day, just taking photos and knowing that I probably wouldn't be back to the spots that I was at and trying to take photos from the car and on top of mountains and all of these things. And I came back and was looking through the photos and thought this actually represents what I saw much more than uh, what I took last year. And there's something really meaningful and beautiful to me about being able to capture um, a reality that other people might not have experienced and, and bring it to them. Uh, yeah, and then basically uh, I just felt compelled last year to begin writing, and so that's what I do. My blog, like you said, is Extra Textuals, which is a name that's very hard to say and also slightly hard to spell, and uh, sort of the concept was just that I really wanted to dive into um, maybe some of the, uh, the hidden meaning of film and books and the world and productivity and photography and maybe try to take a little bit of a, a, a deeper look at things that we we pass off as pretty surface. So I've been writing and it's been it's been a lot of fun and I've really uh, had, had a great time doing it so far and been um, very well received and I, I appreciate comments like yours. Well, I for one have been enjoying your work tremendously, uh, especially lately. I think you've been on fire. <laughs> And, and and what about your gear, the the, photo the photography gear that you're currently using? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, for a long time now, I've been shooting Micro Four Thirds. It's been awesome. I have a little Olympus OMD. And actually, I work for a nonprofit, and I end up doing a lot of video for them. So I have a couple of GH2s, and Micro Four Thirds cameras have just been absolutely wonderful for that for a long time. Um, I have some Voigtlanders yeah. and different, different lenses like that, and, and they're just great. But... Um, maybe, I think it was two months ago, I just felt this real deep sense that I needed to focus more on photography and really do something that would, um, I don't know, make, make the, make the desire for me to take photographs and, um, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I, I knew that I needed to do something maybe a little irrational. Um, yeah. and I did. So I bought a Leica Q. <laughs> <laughs> and it has been incredible. Um, so even though I still use Micro Four Thirds cameras for my work, 
Uh, and I also use them sometimes for um, just general shooting. I have basically been carrying a Leica Q with me nonstop on my person at all times and taking tons of photographs for about 40 days now. Awesome. Awesome. I do have a question, though. How come only one like a Q? I mean, you do have <laughs> yeah. two hands, no. don't you? Yeah, exactly. Well, don't worry. I'm I'm going to buy at least several more um, before the before the end of the year. They were out of stock, right? I mean, you you got the I, last one, and they had to bring more in. I actually, it actually worked out really well for me because I actually bought it used, um, but it had not actually been used. There was some photographer that was selling his on Amazon Prime, uh, and I I took it from him, and I I got a huge discount on it. And, nice. Uh, from what I can tell, he basically didn't use it at all. It, he just didn't think it was for him. So I got I, I got a really good deal on it, um, which is very important. As you guys know, that they're pretty pricey. Yeah, yes. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> pretty pricey might be an understatement. Well, as you know, we talk and we like to joke quite a bit about that camera here on the show. But the truth is we all love it. And we would all really like to shoot with it for an extended period of time to really get a feel for uh, how it is to shoot with that kind of camera. I think it, it brings something special to photography that maybe it's not as easy, as easy to get with some other cameras out there. So I'm definitely curious to hear uh, your thoughts on it. Are, are you planning on writing about your experience with the Q? I am, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that it doesn't seem like I've actually had it for long enough, um, since basically everybody that's written something authoritative on the Q has done it maybe six months or a year or even longer after they've purchased it. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, just, just one example of the fact that it's really changed the way that I, I've viewed photography is um, basically I use Instagram as my creative out, outlet where that's where the photos that I want to show to the world go. And I was probably posting maybe one or two every few days on Instagram uh, when I had my uh, Olympus and just taking photos with the with the um, the iPhone. And since I've purchased the Leica, every single day I have published three photos to Instagram. Uh, so it has just absolutely been radical for the amount of photos that I'm taking. And um, you know, yeah, and the quality of them too, because they've been pretty awesome. <laughs> that that's correct. Yeah, I mean, it is just pretty incredible what you can get out of the Leica. And they're they're basically not edited at all. So I was spending a lot of time editing photos uh, with the with the Olympus and obviously with the iPhone. And I mean, I I basically just like everything right out of the Leica. There's a few settings that you can change in the in the queue itself, and so I made those changes, and that's it. So it's it's been it's been really fascinating. Nice. Nice. And speaking of posting to Instagram uh, from a dedicated camera, what's your workflow for, for doing just that? How do you get the pictures from the camera to the phone? Yeah, so it was funny listening to the last episode that you guys did about um, about uh, Apple Photos, because um, even though I do use Lightroom for huge projects, that's basically what I've been using to uh, store all of these Leica Q photos. So basically, every time that I take um, a, a good couple dozen photos, I grab that little uh, lightning to SD card converter, uh, pop the SD card right into my iPad and just dump the photos right onto the iPad. And mm -hmm. uh, they go into photos, the app, and I kind of heart or like the ones that I really enjoy, delete a few of them and call it a day. So it, it has been very simple and very minimal. Um, and I am using photos to store the majority of these, these images. Cool. So are we to understand that you're shooting JPEG then? Uh, yeah, but... Um, yeah, it's it's either JPEG or DNG, and uh, okay. yeah, the, the the Leica can shoot both. It actually can't shoot just 
one, or maybe what I mean to say is it can't just shoot DNG. It can either shoot DNG and JPEG or JPEG. Oh, really? That's an interesting uh, limitation. I wonder why. It is. It's 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 pretty interesting. But uh, I actually quite enjoy being able to do both, which you know, obviously, it's it's a great it's a great feature. Yeah. Uh, so when I'm shooting something that I know I'm going to need to go back and edit these, uh, I do that. So for example, one of the big shoots that I did so far was a actual wedding. And for that wedding, I shot JPEG and DNG. Uh, and I actually ended up using most of the JPEGs because they were so great. But for those few photos, I really knew that I wanted to edit. I just pulled the DNG into Lightroom and uh, messed with it there. Uh, one of the really fun things about using the iPad, uh, and JPEGs for shooting stuff, even like a wedding was that, uh, during the reception for this wedding that I shot, I just randomly selected maybe 50, 60 images, put them on the iPad and stuck the iPad on a little slideshow mode. Uh, near the little gifts table for the wedding. And all of the participants were actually able to see the photos that from the wedding they had just been a part of. Um, yeah, that's you know. pretty nice. Yeah, which was which was really cool. So, you know, I, I really enjoy having a, a very quick and flexible workflow for, for, for reasons just like that. And also, you know, if I'm going to continue posting three photos a day, which I'm not committed to, I'm, I'm sure that one of these days I'll end up uh, missing that. But I, that's when you buy your second queue. That's when I buy the se the second queue. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, there's no way that I can put all those photos in a Lightroom and edit them and export them. I mean, right now it's literally me putting them on the iPad, maybe doing the slightest edits, and then air dropping them to my iPhone and publishing. That's it. Right. I find it very interesting that you said you barely uh, edit the JPEGs that you get out of the queue, and uh, I've always been curious. Um, do you think all of that buzz that there is online about the Leica colors and all of that uh, almost legend that surrounds these cameras. How, how close to the truth are they? I mean, are you really seeing something special out of that camera in terms of color and, and image quality? Yeah, you know, the, the, the first experience that I really had with um, that uh, Leica Lust was probably with, um, what's his name, Andrew Kim, I believe, from Minimally Minimal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he posted that incredible review of the T. And I thought to myself, these photos just look unlike anything that I'm really accustomed to. And, you know, when I bought the queue, I thought, well, if this is half as good as those photos, then there really is something different here. And I, I think that there are. You know, we have a weird perception, though, where when we look at our own photos, I, I think we're a lot more critical yeah. than when we look at photos of others. And so it, it's hard for me to say if my photos are really that good because, well, you know, they're mine and I, I see all the flaws and I see the problems. But right. um, yeah, I, I think that there are just a really um, beautiful colors. And uh, I really like the the, the, the the kind of interesting way that the Leicas use noise. And I mean, I, I do think that if I were to take a photo with the Olympus and with the Q, that I would by far and away prefer the, the Q's image every time. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it kind of makes sense considering the uh, vast number of differences between both cameras, not only in terms of price, but also, you know, one is a micro four thirds camera, the other one is a full frame. So there's bound to be some differences, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel the sensor, the sensor technology gap between the two? I mean, you, you didn't really um, mention anything about the increased resolution or dynamic range or anything like that. Like were, were those um, things that were meaningful to you in the transition from using one to another? Or was it not really about those kinds of technical details? You know, I, I've never really been too obsessed with the technical details. Um, 
it's not something that's ever really been a, a, a huge factor for me. Now, of course, the, the, the sensor size is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and I make sure to get some use out of that. Uh, the wedding especially was a great example of that where I just did some crazy cropping. I mean, crazy crop cropping. And uh, that was awesome to be able to do that in that setting. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't typically use it. And I, I typically try to take photographs that are similar to what the final product is going to be. So, you know, there's that weird mode where you can change the uh, the... 20, I forgot what it is, 25 millimeter or 50 millimeter or whatever. And there's like different. Oh, the virtual uh, crop thing. The virtual cropping thing. Yeah. I can't actually remember what it's called. Yeah. You can, you can recreate the field of view for 35 and a 50 millimeter lens. That, that's right. And I, I just never use that. Um, it's, it's nice to have, I suppose, but I, I just even mapped the button um, to something different entirely because I just, I don't really see the use for it. Right. I suspect it's more of an aid, uh, you know, for composing your pictures. Because if you shoot DNG, I suppose, well, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I would guess that you still get the entire frame, even though you use that that mode, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So then it just becomes like uh, adjusting the frame lines, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it just... I've, I've never really been too worried about the technical details, I guess, um, which is funny because I think that many people, well, you know, actually maybe it does make sense. I think maybe people that are looking at the actual uh, tech specs might be put off by the Q's price because you can buy, what is it, you know, a, a Sony camera that's quite comparable for a lot less, right? Is that maybe the, the best example right. of a, like a Q-like camera is um, one of those new Sony yeah, the RX1R2 would be mm, my first, that, that's my first right. guess. Yeah, I think that's the direct, that's the most direct comparison. Yeah, um, but I mean, for me, it's less about the technical details and it's more about the the way that it feels in my hand and the way that it compels me to take photographs. And right. even, even just stuff like um, the way that the, the there's a there's an actual physical um, dial or, or way in which to change every single feature, like... Um, you know, the there's an aperture ring and there's an ISO dial and there's all these different little things that make it really, really great. The the um, way that you change it from autofocus to manual focus is you literally um, push in this little button and you click the you click the the, the focus ring in to a certain like point mm-hmm. and uh, and it becomes in autofocus mode and. Uh, as you twist from it, it has both a just normal and macro mode and as you twist the ring. Um, like a, a mechanical setting actually changes and you see the, oh, you know what? I don't actually know what it's called. What's the, the little, what's the little ring that, that says uh, how far away? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the depth of field scale. The, yeah, depth of field scale. It actually uh, reveals itself. It's like hidden. Um, nice. It, it just, there's these, all these little incredible features that you don't really know until you have it in your hand. Uh, and it is, it is fascinating and really I don't know. It, it compels me to take more photos. And I think at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Absolutely. Uh, out of curiosity, as you were um, dealing with these these feelings of, of needing to make some sort of change in your setup uh, to, to compel you to take more photos, um, was the Leica Q basically the only thing on your radar or was it a process of narrowing down between a number of different choices? Uh, it basically was the only one on my radar. Um, well, Marius and his love of the Fuji uh, <laughs> made me really interested in that. Um, so I was I was researching that and looking at it, and it seemed really great. Um, but again, I don't know. It was just one of those things where I knew that this was the camera that was going to make me take more photos. So that's what I went with. 
Yeah, it wasn't a leading question. I was just curious because we've had, you know, obviously I I do the Fuji thing, but we also had Dan Hawk on recently and he, um, I I guess, had a similar set of circumstances that led him to buying the RX-1R, which we were jealous of as well. So it's just, it's interesting how different people gravitate toward different solutions to effectively the same problem. I mean, we all want to go out and and take more photos and we all want to be inspired by the gear that we have. and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously I, I'm very jealous that you have the Leica Q in your hands now and are able to shoot with that. But um, because it is such an investment, um, I, I'm always, you know, when, when people buy a Leica camera, it feels like uh, you have to put a lot of thought into it because there are options that are more affordable. And while they don't carry the same uh, mystique, it, uh, it, it begs the question of where that inspiration is coming from, right? Like right. what, what is it about the Leica that inspires those feelings that you can't get in a camera that is, you know, half its cost. And it, it's, it's obviously not a matter of technical details. Is it a matter of ergonomics? Is it a matter of, you know, the, the final image output? So it's, it's just interesting to, uh, to see how you, you reached that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I do think that, you know, I, I just feel I'm very fortunate and that I was able to do this for myself. Um, but at the same time, I've been happy in taking photos for years without the cue. Yeah. So uh, just as much as I've always wanted it, uh, I could have continued forward without it just just fine. Um, but I didn't. And <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of it, you know, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one aspect that I find interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that perhaps uh, coming from a system with a smaller sensor like Micro Four Thirds, you do feel the pull of a full-frame camera more than perhaps you would otherwise. And uh, at least that was the case for me personally uh, about a year ago when I when I decided it was time for me to switch. Uh, and I never really considered Fuji for that, for that reason. It's like... Uh, both the Leica Q and and to to more or less the same degree the RX One R two, they both feel like a final choice. Like there's nothing obviously beyond it. Like you're gonna be at peace with your choice. And and that's something that perhaps is a bit more difficult to feel if I had chosen to go with Fuji instead, for example. I would still feel like like there was a step above that I was missing. Yeah, right? absolutely. And of course, I'm not I'm not getting into medium format or anything like that because that's just crazy. Now, before you shot with the Q, um, you were I think it's kind of funny. We were all Micro Four Thirds shooters for a while. Um, you know, some for more than others. But um, you you had a and I, I assume you still have your collection of F point nine five Voigtlander primes. Oh my. Uh, and I know that we are extremely curious about those because I don't think either of us, Alvaro, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think either of us have actually shot with those, but we are obviously lovers of the Micro Four Thirds system in general. And those lenses are uh, as good as it gets, obviously, within that system. So I'd love to hear more about sort of what what you thought of those lenses, um, how you worked around the, the manual focus, um, you know, limitation, if we can call it that. Um, and and sort of what you what you found wanting about that that ultimately led you to the Q. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I th- those end up end up being my um, very favorite Micro Four Thirds camera or lenses. Uh, before maybe the, the the lens that I shot the most with and still still use quite often, especially for video, is the twenty five millimeter. Man, I always get confused about who actually makes it. It's the one that I think actually has like a glass. Um, do you guys know what I'm talking about? 
Right. Oh, the Panasonic one. The Panasonic. Yeah, it's Panasonic. Yep. Um, and and I, I had been shooting with that lens for a, a long, long time. And then when those Voigtlanders came out, I just I knew I needed to, to give one a try. Uh, so I ended up getting one um, and then I ended up getting another. And both of them were just incredible, uh, incredible lenses. I didn't really mind the fact that they were uh, manual. Um, it actually was really interesting because I'd never really shot manual lenses before. Um, I've almost always relied very heavily on autofocus. So that was a, a pretty big deal. Right. Um, and uh, even though I have the 25 millimeter and I, I really enjoy using it, the, the 42 is basically what I use exclusively. So I'm just constantly using uh, the 42 millimeter. Um, it is it is just a remarkable lens. It, it, it's a remarkable lens for video and it's a remarkable lens for, for photo. And right. uh, on the, uh, the OMD that I have, it has that uh, focus peaking ability. So it, it's been really easy for me to use a, a manual lens with a really low depth of field and still get a, a sharp shot. Uh, and I, I just actually recorded the video for, for my the organization for which I work. And I had, uh, I had a, the, the, the 25 millimeter and the 42 millimeter, um, both on GH2 cameras. And I just basically never wanted to use the 25 millimeter shot because the 42 is just gorgeous. And people that don't even know anything about photography, right. they come by and they say, oh my gosh, that is just an <laughs> incredible looking shot. It just looks beautiful. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I basically ended up using exclusively that, um, when I would carry a camera around with me, I would just carry the 42 and the, the LMD. And, um, I took some really great photos with it and I, I really enjoy it to this day. It's, it's definitely my favorite micro four th thirds lens I've ever had. Interesting. And the other one that you own is the, is it the 17.5? It is the 17.5. Yeah. Nice. Nice. That's the one I'm personally most curious about because it, it that translates to, uh, 35 millimeter field of view and that's something that I I've, I've always loved so I was if I had to buy one of those Voigtlander primes and and I did consider them for for a while back then uh, it would have been that one for sure yeah you know I, I thought that I was really going to love that lens um, but I, I really don't honestly and I think that it's partially because the the way that things look out of the camera uh, look a little distorted honestly Right. Um, which is which is a, a challenge sometimes, especially when you're trying to take, um, you know, when you're trying to, to, to shoot a, a video maybe with a with a person, you know, from like shoulders up or something. It just it looks a little wrong. Right. Uh, and and I do think that subconsciously even I've always been drawn to photography and video of um, maybe things at slightly unusual angles or, or maybe a, a slightly different different look at a thing. And the, the 17 point five is is basically the entire the entire the entire scene where the 42.5 allows <laughs> you to um maybe, maybe get some, something slightly different so um i i basically never use the the 17.5 alone um it's kind of secondary in my mind to the 42.5 right no but it's interesting that you would mention the the distortion because these lenses are known for having quite a bit of, of that going on. And, uh, and, and interestingly enough, they, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just mostly speaking from memory, uh, but I don't think they have electrical contacts, the lenses. No. So you don't get aperture information no, or, or anything like that. And that makes it, that it makes those lenses tricky to use for two reasons. First is that when you're reviewing your images, you have no way of knowing which focal length you were using, which, which basically 
nothing about the lens is registered in the final files. And a consequence of that is that it's impossible to use automated lens profiles uh, in Lightroom or or any or any other photo editing applications because basically the app the app doesn't know which lens was used to capture the picture. I mean, if you if you know it because you remember which lens you used, you could in theory activate those profiles manually. But uh, if you have thousands and thousands of pictures, that's not always easy. Uh, so yeah, that's a challenge, and and I can definitely see how it would be a little bit of a pain to to live with that on a daily basis. But yeah, it it really is um, a, a benefit though that I, I've always really enjoyed with these lenses is that um, the uh, aperture ring is actually um, has has two settings. It can be the the normal clicked ring, or it can be clickless. Yeah, uh, which has been wonderful for shooting. For shooting video. Yeah, and they were doing that before it was cool. They were doing it before it was cool. So yeah, <laughs> you just pull on the ring and then you you twist it from um, the top to bottom. And uh, yeah, it allows you to not have those those terrible clicked steps. Uh, and that's that's been a, a really nice benefit for shooting video. And I mean, honestly, you know, I, I think that we both understand or we all understand that the Leica Q is not known for its its video ability. So as someone who <laughs> sees myself as continuing to do video for the for a long time in the future, it, it's great to have these lenses and great to have this camera system to use whenever I need to. Definitely. Have you been tempted by uh, like upgrading the body itself, the GH2 to a GH4? I really haven't because it just has been so easy for me, um, and it's it's been basically more than capable. And when I when I'm shooting uh, just any random video, I actually use the Olympus OMD instead of the uh, GH2s. Um, the GH2s are basically only ever on tripods, only ever filming a person talking. Right, uh, and they're they're more than more than capable cameras. It's funny, I actually got two. Um, on Craigslist a long time ago, um, somebody was selling them because they were moving to Canon cameras and they were selling them for, I can't remember, it was something incredibly cheap, like $700 for both of them. And this was years ago. Oh, good deal. When, yeah. Yeah. When maybe the GH3 had just come out and uh, they, I live in Tampa and the the Craigslist ad was in Miami and I I said, please hold them for me. And I, I just immediately drove <laughs> from Tampa to Miami, which is a maybe five-hour drive. Um, and I was very, very happy. Oh, it was to worth it. it. Yes, it was absolutely worth it. And I've been I've been getting tons and tons of use out of them. Now, of course, if I needed anything like 4K, um, I would upgrade. But I just, like I said, you know, that those kinds of tech specs have never been uh, huge selling points for me. And uh, I think that the, the, the GH2s have been incredibly capable cameras for the entire time I've had them. Yeah. Right. I have I have a question that's perhaps a bit geeky or not entirely related to photography, but when you buy equipment, you know, on Craigslist or uh, whatever whatever website, um, do you pay special attention at how heavily used the cameras have been? Because as far as I understand, video recording is very taxing on the sensor. Uh, so... Some people might say this camera is in in great condition. It has only been used to shoot like ten thousand pictures, but yeah, if it has like two thousand hours of video uh, on its back, then that's that's quite a bit of of the the useful life of the sensor that's been I don't want to say wasted, but like the lifespan of the camera gets substantially reduced. I would say. Right. Right. Is that something you're cautious about when you're when you're looking for 
gear on those sites? It's funny because I honestly really don't end up buying many things from Craigslist and and used. I ended up basically telling the two major stories of me buying something secondhand uh, (laughs) here today Um, because the the lenses that I buy, they're almost always new. Um, uh, Different equipment that I buy, it's almost always new. These just happen to be two situations in which I saw a deal that I couldn't pass up. Right. Um, And like I said, the Leica was basically basically unused. And I, I believe, and it, it's been years now, so it's hard for me to remember, but I believe that the person said they had only had the, um, the GH2s for maybe six months or something like that. Um, they, right. they were in excellent condition. Um, and, you know, I, I've had them for years and years now, and I shoot ridiculous amounts of video, and they have been more than fine. So it doesn't really end up being too much of an issue for me. Nice. And you can always factor it into the cost as you're negotiating, right? I mean, if they tell you that it's, you know, they've been heavily, heavily used, even That's if right. the cosmetic condition is good, you say, well, you know, taking into account the condition and the fact that it's probably out of warranty, blah, 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 blah. So it just becomes another criteria that you take into account when you're yeah. trying to you know, land on a price, but that's a, that's a really good deal for that pair. And the fact that they've, uh, that they've worked out so well, I think combined with those Voigtlander lenses, um, I mean, that's a deadly kit for, uh, quite a lot of different shooting contexts, really. I mean, we, we've got a GH4 at the agency and we're, we're very pleased with it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the only real thing that it doesn't handle very well is low light, yeah, and neither does the GH2. And of course, I don't know what, what the GH4 does, but I mean, the, the GH2 is a, a hopeless, hopeless candidate for taking any photos. It's great for video, but I mean, God help you if you're trying to take photographs with that thing. It is just awful. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it is it is terrible. Yeah, I, I tested it a few times just out of curiosity because I had like the 45 mil Olympus Prime that, you know, I loved so much on my OMD, OMD cameras. And mm-hmm. I figured, hey, why not, you know, see what the GH4 is like? Um, and it's it's not it's not great. <laughs> no, it's really not. Yeah. And that, that's why, you know, I've been really happy with having um, the yeah, that that tag team of GH2s and um the the omd because with those cameras combined you can really get a lot done and the omd man i mean it just has that ridiculous um stabilization system where you know you can take some some pretty crazy video that looks like it's on a steady cam but it's really just just the the built-in stabilization doing its doing its thing yeah and that compared with the uh, i mean match with the really fast aperture of those oidlander primes it's got to be a killer night kit yeah, it really is. So, Drew, this is where the conversation is going to get a little bit more polarized because I don't <laughs> more polarized than the Leica Q. Yeah, <laughs> just bear with me. Uh, having listened to the previous episodes of Candid, you probably know that Marius here uh, uses an iPad Pro as his primary computing device, and he's been really trying to uh, put together a reliable workflow for editing pictures on it, and it looks like we're getting closer and closer to that ideal. Whereas myself, I I don't own an iPad Pro and I don't feel particularly inclined to. So we've been at odds on this topic for a while. Now, you also own an iPad Pro and you also use it uh, to edit your pictures. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your workflow? Uh, Finally, someone on my side. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I've always really been a big fan of iOS. 
So that, that's a huge component of it. Honestly, there's just something inside of me that has never enjoyed using a Mac in the same way that I've enjoyed using an iPad or iPhone. Um, I was a very, very early adopter to the whole iPad scene. Um, I've had quite a few of them, had the iPad, iPad 2, and iPad Air, and iPad Air 2, and iPad Pro. So right. um, this is nothing new for me necessarily um, because I've, I've just always enjoyed these cameras, or I'm sorry, always enjoyed these devices. Um, but the iPad Pro, probably one of the, the main reasons that I really wanted to, to give it a try was for photography because um, the iPad Air showed me what a great um, what a great device these things were for for photos. And now, of course, we we're still in the early days, right? So right. because because the technology is, is newer, so to speak, there is no Lightroom equivalent on the iPad. But even still, there's just something so special to me about having an entire screen where the the the, the whole screen is dedicated to the photo and. Yes. You know, I've always used um, smaller, smaller laptops, so I've never really been huge on iMacs or anything like that. I, I'm, I've always very much favored portability. Uh, and for the last few years, my, my computer has been a 13-inch MacBook Pro. And, you know, think about how big the image is on a 13-inch MacBook Pro in Lightroom when you have right. the entire... Um, the entire side dedicated to the, the, the toggles and sliders and the bottom, you know, dedicated to that that camera roll. I mean, the, the image just gets swallowed up. Yeah, it's a very it's a very Chrome heavy application, no doubt. It is. It really is. I've also used it occasionally on my 13 inch MacBook Pro, and I wouldn't describe it as a very pleasant way to work. Definitely. No. Yeah, and and so you know that that's sort of where I'm coming from is right. that sort of experience and. Um, having a, a you know twelve inch MacBook, I'm sorry, having a twelve inch iPad Pro that the entire screen is dedicated to an image is just fantastic. And so, uh, I mean, honestly, that is basically the primary reason that I do it. Um, I, I posted a, an article a while ago about my workflow, yes. so to speak, and it it kind of blew up. It it got linked on Mac Stories and. Uh, it got lots and lots of responses and comments, and I, I honestly think that it was such a quote unquote, you know, like big thing because people want this, um, but they all also understand that it's not quite ready for prime time, and right. that's a frustration for people. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, one of the, the apps that I settled on using quite often is called Polar. Have you guys ever used that or heard of that Polar? Yeah, I love Polar. Actually, I've been okay. using it a lot on uh, on my iPad recently. Yeah, and it's it's a great app. has some really nice features. Um, it's definitely the one that I found that's the best so far. But even still, it's got some crazy bugs and uh, some of its 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 own set of problems. And you know, it's not as polished as I would as I would love it to be. Right. So you know, I'm just constantly dealing with that kind of stuff. But I would happily make that trade off for being able to being able to just you know have a a, a touch screen that is dedicated to the image that I'm looking at. Um, so basically, what I what I use is uh, if I use anything at all, I use Polar, and then I use Photoshop Fix every once in a while to just get rid of little annoying, you know, problems. Or I, I took a photo yesterday, and I realized that um, there were all these bugs in the air, <laughs> so all these little blurry <laughs> shapes in the background. So you know, Photoshop Fix is really handy when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, and those are really the the two apps that I primarily use over and over again. I would love to see Darkroom. 
um, the, the fantastic iPhone editing app come to the iPad, but I'm not holding my breath because it's been so long. And then of course, like you guys talked about on the last episode, I am very excited for the concept of that affinity photo right. coming to the iPad, but um, I think we have a ways to go before that's released. So I'll continue using that, the apps that I use right now until, until something changes. Well, I suspect the, the recent announcements on the raw front are probably going to encourage some developers to finally port their, their apps to the iPad because now they have a legitimate reason to do so and, and they can maybe for the first time create a really powerful desktop class application on the iPad and that's very exciting. And for what it's worth, that's what's uh, holding the device back in my mind. It's definitely not the hardware. I think the hardware has been good enough for quite a while already. Uh, but it's the apps and especially the OS. I still don't feel as comfortable on iOS as I do on the Mac. And um, well, I'm... I'm trying to keep an open mind, definitely. And if, if they can create something special, uh, I'll be the first to, to give it a shot because I, I, I really like the promise. I just haven't seen it realized yet. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, my big concern is the catalog continuity. That's that's the thing that's ultimately um, my most frustrating bugbear about the whole iPad first thing is, I mean, for many, many years, I've been putting all of my photos into Lightroom. I mean, that's the that's the sort of canonical um, catalog for all of my photos. And now, of course, with iOS sort of trying to take that over, um, I'm having a difficult time figuring out how to elegantly um, get photos from camera to iPad to Lightroom. Like it's honestly the, the solution that I'm coming to is uh, in favor of dropping Lightroom rather than trying to make it fit in because it's just so annoying to have to be shuttling these files around in different places. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that with the raw improvements that are coming to iOS 10, there might be a more elegant way to get raw files or raw JPEG pairs off of a camera, edited on the iPad, um, but then ultimately archived safely uh, with the rest of my you know history of photos in uh, in Lightroom. But I, I just right now there's this kind of um, I don't know. It just it, it, the workflow feels scattered to me, which I don't like. So what I'm finding is that I adore editing photos on the iPad, but I'm only ever doing it for um, you know a small set at a time, and then ultimately I'm still importing those photos a second time into Lightroom, right. even if I end up using the the iPad edit. So it just feels like there's a bunch of redundancies in there that that kind of piss me off. And <laughs> I can I can almost see the letter on Apple's website. Thoughts on Lightroom. Yeah. Yeah. No joke. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So but anyway, the the other side of this, of course, is uh, um, the new Retina MacBook, which is what uh, Josh ultimately opted to uh, to use as his uh, as his sort of portable triage point and uh, and and main machine. So, um, I mean, we drew you and I have, have sort of landed in the iPad camp. But were you tempted by the MacBook? Do you think that as it stands today, um, that I mean, obviously that's that's still a better workflow for most people. But but how do you um, like? Wh- why was it? the iPad that ultimately won your allegiance between those two? Yeah, honestly, it's because I just really love the the iOS system so much. Yeah, I actually have a, a MacBook. Um, it's my wife's. So um, I have not yet convinced her that iOS is a superior thing, um, <laughs> which is which is funny because, you know, I, I think that for so many people, so many people, um, you know, computers are annoying because they offer too many complexities. And 
that that's part of why I like the iPad to begin with is that uh, it's it's such a distractionless machine. And so when I'm writing, I'm writing, and when I'm editing photos, I'm editing photos. And of course, now you have the ability to do two things at once, yep. but still, you it, it, I don't know. It, it feels more clearly focused than yeah. um, what is now known as Mac OS feels. Um, so I've, I've played a, a great deal with the MacBook because I, every once in a while, steal it from my wife. Um, and it's, it's an incredible device. I, I really do enjoy it. But at the same time, I just have no interest in trying to make that a primary computer for me. Um, the iPad Pro is, I mean, by all means, my primary computer. I'm, on, I'm actually on vacation right now. That's what I brought with me is the iPad Pro, the uh, MacBook sitting at home somewhere. And uh, every day I go and I write on the iPad Pro and I edit on the iPad Pro and it's it's the device. It's really yeah. the device. Um, okay, so let's hang on. Let's let's unpack the travel bit because that's where I find myself most frustrated. So right now, in a couple of days, I'm leaving for Europe. I'll be there for two weeks and I don't own a laptop anymore. Like my, my iPad Pro is my main portable device. That's it. Um, and one of the things that is um, concerning me is that I really don't have a good place to offload the photos that I take because I have a 128 gigabyte iPad. I can fit a lot of stuff on there, provided I don't also have a bunch of movies for the trip, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, I'm still stuck with a bunch of raw files as well that I would like to safely store in two places, but I'm kind of basically the solution right now is to bring more SD cards and when I get back, import them all again into Lightroom or whatever, just on my computer and then up to cloud storage. So it's kind of a, it's a frustrating thing for travel because I like the, conceptually, I like the elegance of having the ability to offload all of those files into the same environment that I'm going to edit and ultimately store them in forever and not having to worry about separate steps for um for that so for me i'm you know since you're in a similar travel scenario have you found a better way around this or is it just a problem that that you don't uh, face with the raw files or i guess if you don't have a consolidated catalog of everything it's it's sort of a non-issue but how do you deal with um just managing all of those photos on a trip so are you basically saying how am i how am i holding on to all those photos that I'm taking? Yeah, like, are, are they all just going on the iPad? Are they all fitting on the iPad? Or do you have another system in place to just keep track of them? Or are they just sitting on SD cards like mine will? No, no, yeah, they're all on the iPad, and they will be. And, you know, may, maybe a difference is that I I don't really, and I have never considered myself to be a person that um, takes uh, an overwhelming amount of photos. Right. Um, so I, and I know that many people do, and it's excellent because, you know, you get some, some ridiculous shots out of that. And, um, I've always, I've always been a person that maybe I'm a little honestly like, uh, shy when it comes to taking photos. I, I try to be a little more present in the moment. Um, I try, you know, a, a lot of the time I'm with my wife and I try not to, um, you know, take every single, uh, experience that we're having and make, make it about getting a shot. Um, but Basically, at the end of the day, I can always expect to have maybe 50 photos or less, you know. Right. Uh, so I've been here, I've been on vacation for two days, and I've probably only taken 25 photos or something like that. It, it's really not an overwhelming amount. Um, so, you know, I mean, basically, the, the first time that I ran into a real issue 
with photo storage on the iPad Pro was when I when I was shooting that wedding, right? Um, because obviously I had thousands of photos, and I knew that there was no way that I would be, um, you know, slapping all of them on the iPad Pro to edit. So um, I I actually tried to not do that, but to um, you know get a maybe I think I might maybe tried like 150 or 200 or 250 photos um, for that slideshow that I told you guys I was doing, mm-hmm. and basically I, the iPad said no, like that's too many, <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, yeah I forgot if it was saying that it was like a storage issue or what, but it basically just said that's not that's not going to happen. Um, so uh, that that's really the only time that I've ran into some weird storage or capacity issue. Other than that, I mean, it's been fine. And I you know have that lovely setting turned on in Photos that um, is optimizing the the photos that are actually right. on your iPad. Right. Yeah. And you know, actually, I'm not sure what my iCloud um, storage is. I think it might be the 200 gigabyte storage plan yeah that's I, the I one that I'm might on be well. what it is yeah, yeah, yeah and I, I i looked a while ago and i still had another 40 or 30 gigs left right so it's basically not a problem that's going to hit uh consumers and just normal users on a regular basis but uh, but yeah if if it's a working photographer on an assignment or shooting an event then that's when things get a whole lot more difficult yeah that's absolutely right yeah, and that's what's holding me back because I don't. I'm I'm actually the same in the sense that I don't really like um, taking a huge number of photos, even when I'm on a job doing it. I'm I'm not really the kind of spray and pray, uh, burst heavy shooter. But still, I mean, in a in a given event, just to get good coverage, you end up with a fair number of photos. And yes, I can probably fit one session onto the iPad. And if I'm at home and I'm able to you know, have reliable access to Wi-Fi, get those into iCloud in preparation for the next set, that's fine. But for, you know, now, for instance, on this trip, I'm not going to have Wi-Fi access for 90% of it. Right. Which means that the storage that I go to Europe with is the storage that I have to make fit the entire two weeks worth of shooting. And some days I'll probably only have, you know, five or 10 photos. Others, I might have 200 photos. By the end of the two weeks... I actually run into this storage issue. I'm looking at my my iPad Pro now, and I've got um, just under 10 gigabytes available right now on on board, which means right. I've obviously got to trim a whole bunch of stuff before I go on the trip, because otherwise I won't even be able to offload a single card. Um, you have 10 gigs left on not not an iCloud, but actually on the uh, the iPad itself. On the device, yeah, mm. yeah. My gosh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm a little surprised too. I'm I'm just looking at what the hell is taking up all the space. Um, uh, but anyway, so yeah, that's that's kind of my big impediment right now. And the other side of it, um, besides raw storage, is also bulk file management. Um, trying to keep things organized, trying to do any sort of batch editing is just currently not a great experience um, at all on an right. iPad. And granted, there are relatively few times when I feel the need to do that on the go. Um, but still, it's just it's these little hiccups that are, uh, I guess, stopping me from being able to really transition my professional workflow to the iPad, because that's ultimately my goal. I don't, uh, the the personal shooting and all of that stuff works just fine. I'm happy. Okay. But in terms of bringing my actual work fully to the iPad, that's where I still can't make the full commitment. And I wish I could. Yeah. I think maybe one of my biggest um, issues with the iPad Pro and using photos to store all the, all the images I'm taking is um, just simply the fact that it's hard to determine what you're, um, you're trying to discard. 
um, you yeah. know, on Lightroom, I love the ability to say these photos I do not like, and then, you know, delete them. And uh, that doesn't exist at all in, in photos. And so I end up having, you know, a, a, a ton of images that I, I will never use and I'm, I'm not really happy with um, that are just kind of stuck inside of photos because I have to go and uh, manually, you know, sort through and, and delete them. Right. Um, I was actually planning on, you know, kind of looking through and seeing if there was any, you know, third party app that would help me with that. Um, and I, um, initially I couldn't, I couldn't really find anything, but um, I wouldn't be too surprised if somebody had created that or will create that in the future. Um, but again, you know, that's sort of how I feel is just that this is so early for the iPad Pro that we just aren't there yet. You know, Light, Lightroom didn't come out until, you know, well, well after OS 10 or um, Mac OS 10 and uh, in the, in the same way, whatever is the comparable version for the iPad is probably not going to come out for a while either. Um, right. But I, I guess for me, it just is all about the fact that I just prefer it and I am super happy to deal with the weird issues that the iPad Pro brings because I find myself editing photos more consistently on this device than I would with uh, would with the Mac. How do you feel about the relative lack of um, emphasis on iPad specific features at WWDC this year? Because that was something that we were kind of surprised by. Yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty sad about that. Honestly, um, I kept waiting, you know, and then I thought, surely it's not over yet. And that was, it was actually one of the funny things where everybody said, "Oh my gosh, you know, what a absolutely packed WWDC." There was so much that was said, you know, I couldn't imagine anything else being fit in. And I thought, well, I, I really could imagine something else being fit in. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, I, it, it seems to me like the iPad is is being iterated on in its own way. Um, and I wouldn't be too surprised to see, you know, uh, some, some huge new features come to all the iPads when the next iPad Pro is announced or right. what have you. Um, and that would make sense. Yeah, I, I wasn't too, I wasn't too surprised that it didn't, that, that it didn't get a, a lot of time. Um, you know, and two, I, I really do wonder what 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 numbers Apple knows that we don't about who is using the iPad Pro, and you know, it, right. it, it makes sense to me that they they talk about the iPhone and iOS itself more than anything else because you know there are there are a lot more iPhones out in the world than there are in the, the iPad Pro, um, and I, I totally understand that. Uh, that's the question that people seem to forget about it, which is that for all the great new features of the iPad Pro, so far, we don't know the real story of how well it is selling. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the, the, yeah, the historic trend is not very, very positive for the iPad and hasn't been so for quite a few quarters in a row already. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a great device and it shows a lot of potential, but so far people aren't buying it. and. It's still early. I mean, I, I guess from here to the fall, we, we might get some new numbers released and perhaps we'll finally see an uptake in iPad sales. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm, I am genuinely worried about the future of the platform because eventually Apple might just say, you know what, we've been, we've been putting everything we have into the iPad for a while and it's just not working. So I, I really hope that doesn't happen, but the numbers have to start changing soon for that to make sense. Yeah, and I think that the iPad Pro is not only a, a niche device in the fact that it's so, you know, powerful, but also that it's it's so pricey. I mean, it's basically the same as a, as a laptop. So yeah. it's not something that people are buying because it's inexpensive and it's not something that people are buying because it's 
um, you know, easy to use, quote unquote, you know, it's, it's something very different. Um, but you know, even though sales are of course very important to when it comes to something like this, it really does seem like Apple has a vision of the future. Um, and iOS sort of is that vision. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in its, in its future existence, but of course, you know, anything could happen. Yeah, I'm not worried about it overall yet. I mean, I think it's too soon to be sounding the alarm, but I do wish that they'd at least hinted at some things. You know, the way they did subliminally with the, uh, with, well, with the raw stuff, for example, they didn't really talk about it, but it was sort of revealed on stage, you know, just something to give us a, a sense of what we can expect. Right. Um, because there was a lot of speculation leading up to WWDC about whether or not um, iOS itself would effectively split in half um, to to provide a more robust set of, uh, well, just a more robust operating system um, on the iPad versus the phones. And I always thought that was a very bad idea overall, but I wouldn't have minded seeing some, um, just some hint that uh, the iPad Pro does get, or, or just iPads in general do get some um, right. some attention. Because right now, even on the iOS 10 beta, a lot of things are just very poorly optimized for the iPad form factor in general, which you know shows us that they are definitely working on it from a mobile first perspective, which is fine. But again, it's just kind of, uh, it, it's not what I was hoping for, I suppose. I, I wanted to to see equal attention paid to both um, to both platforms. So we'll, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what shakes out over the course of, uh, the next couple months before it is actually released. Right. Um, and maybe some stuff is just being held back. Um, and, and there are some other things that we think might be updated on the iCloud front and things like that, 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 you know, we, we don't quite see the full picture for yet. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get some iPad focused event later on when the, when the iPhones are, uh, refreshed. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's what yeah. I'm thinking. Uh, sometimes it's hard to unveil uh, software features when they're tied to future hardware features uh, without spoiling those hardware features. So if Apple has yeah. something special planned for the iPad uh, you know, for the fall, uh, I would completely understand that they would want to uh, give it the spotlight in its own event instead of just diluting the news uh, on a really packed keynote. Uh, so that's that's one thing. And the other thing uh, that you mentioned about iOS possibly splitting in two versions, I really wouldn't hold my breath on that, uh, on that front, because everything Apple has been telling developers for a couple of years now is to make sure that you only have one version of an app that's capable of running on any Apple device of any screen sized and any pretty much uh, dimensions. Uh, so th they're telling people you should make your, your app as universal as possible. So that makes me think they're not, they're not planning to split iOS into anytime soon. Oh yeah. No, I wasn't expecting it to be the case. It was just a, a sort of pervasive um, rumor that was floating around beforehand. And I, I, I've never put much stock into it, but um, anyway, it's, yeah, I'd, I'd rather they keep them together, frankly, for, for many different reasons. Yeah, me too. Are you running iOS 10? On the uh, iPad Pro? I'm not yet. I actually haven't updated to any of the betas because of the trip, um, because I won't be able to right. roll back <laughs> if something goes wonky, right? But that would be fun. <laughs> well, maybe not, right? I mean, it, the, these are going to be my my only 
devices while I'm there. So I don't, I don't really feel like uh, risking first beta, first gen beta software. I, I'm running it because I'm a, I'm a reckless person. <laughs> Thomas Wong actually was, uh, was reporting. He, he's been running it. Um, I think all three betas, the watch as well, and he's been uh, having a good time with it. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very tempted, and I still have two days before I leave. So you never know. But um, yeah, so far I've I've held off. I'm just going on what other people are telling me. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really wanted to mess around with the uh, the new watch OS, so I did that, and of course had to change the iPhone because of that. And then right. I thought, well, I've came I've come this far. I might as well put it on my iPad Pro too. So I I have it everywhere. And how is it? It's 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 wonderful. Yeah, it's really great. It, it hasn't been um, really all too buggy at all. Of course, you know, nice. every once in a while the uh, iPhone just randomly resets because betas um, yes. but other than that it's been it's been pretty rock solid as long as it doesn't explode as long as it doesn't explode it, so far so good <laughs> yeah well that's good i mean that's uh thank you for tempting me even more i'm sure that will end well <laughs> yeah okay so all in all this was a pretty interesting episode thank you so much drew for joining us today uh it was really a blast i'm so happy that we finally got to talk to you because i've been looking forward to this for a while why don't you remind the good listeners of Candid, where they can find you online. Yeah, it's it was my pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, if anybody wants to learn more about me or see my writing and my photos, um, basically my name is Drew Kaufman on every social network in the world. So Instagram is where I put a lot of photos. Uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, so feel free to say hello. Uh, and if you want to see what I write, you can go to extratextuals.com. So thanks again, guys. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.